At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. While Governor Kemp highlights the rollout of new vaccination centers and plans to expand vaccine eligibility, some data analysis put the state at or near the bottom for distributing the vaccines it has on hand. In the legislature, the voting overhaul fight has only gotten more intense as the state mourns a native son who became a civil rights giant. And Atlanta's spike in violent crime gets an unexpected moment of national attention. We appreciate that you're giving us your attention in this edition of The Political Breakfast. A warm welcome to you all. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Democratic strategist Theron Johnson, Republican strategist Brian Robinson are with us again. Hello there, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, Dennis. Well, it's hard to know where to start this time, so let's just pick a subject, the state capital war over voting. The House passed a Republican package of overhaul measures, including more ID for absentee voting, limits on Dropbox locations, more limits on early voting on weekends, including fewer souls to the polls Sunday voting opportunities. Meanwhile, the Senate is moving to ban no-excuse absentee voting entirely and end automatic voter registration. Brian, last week you said you still don't think that many of these provisions would survive, but the momentum among Republicans right now appears to be very strong, and do you really think that Governor Kemp, who could face a primary challenge from his right flank, would veto any measure that gets to him? You know, politically, the easiest thing for Governor Kemp would be to just sign whatever hits his desk and begin to heal some of the wounds with the base who overwhelmingly believe that there was something that went awry with our election in 2020, despite all evidence to the contrary. But you notice those Republicans in the legislature aren't questioning the validity of their wins that gave them their seats. That's been an underlying issue uh, from the very beginning. Uh, so, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was asked about that directly back uh, during the transition before she took office and was like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the presidential. <laughs> so uh, there's an unwillingness to uh, deal with that irony and that disconnect there. Anyway, back to Governor Kemp. Sorry. But Governor Kemp has avoided coming out full throated for everything that has been on the table. I infer from that that he knows that there's some of this is probably going a little bit too far. And as you know, as, as regular listeners of Political Breakfast know, I am in favor, strongly in favor of some of these measures. I strongly believe that adding an ID 
component, a security component to absentee is a great reform, one that is long overdue, one that can be easily implemented without suppressing votes or causing a burden on any demographic in our state. But at least right now, the House measure bundles that with a lot of these other things. Yeah. And I still do believe, Dennis, that some of that will get paired back in conference committee or sometime during the legislative process. Now, I may be Pollyanna for thinking so, but I think we're going to have a strong reform that appeases many Republican voters, but without raising the hackles of the federal government, the DOJ, and the courts. Just this week, the Supreme Court heard a case out of Arizona, and even the conservative justices were raising questions about changes that notably impacted how minorities vote as opposed to how white people vote. One of those things that would be in that vein here in Georgia would be Sunday voting. Real quickly before we get to Theron, can you foresee anything that the governor might veto, especially if more moderate measures are bundled in with more extreme ones? Well, it, what's tricky there, Dennis, is you know I don't know how many bills are going to hit his desk. He, he does have a line item veto, but it's only for the two budget bills. He doesn't have a line item veto in other legislation, so he can't remove some parts and keep other parts of bills. So it's either all or nothing. This is one of those things, and this is something I'm very familiar with from my time in the governor's office under deal. There are times when the governor engages to say, here's what I want to hit my desk, and this is what I can sign, and here's what I got to veto. And I'm sure that those conversations are going on right now. And then there are other times when the governor just lets the legislature lead the way, stays out of it, and then deals with it on the back end. I always prefer the first when it comes to coming to a reasonable conclusion that is good for all parties. And I'm sure that's what Governor Kemp is doing, that he is engaging behind the scenes, telling them what he'll sign. But just quickly, one thing I want to go back to from last week, this John Lewis Budding Rights Act is under consideration, and there are a lot of things in it that I don't like and that a lot of Republicans don't like, particularly those of us on the front lines of getting rid of Section 5 of the current Voting Rights Act, which I was deeply involved in. Yeah, just to clarify for our listeners, this is the bill that we've talked about in several podcasts now in Congress, a federal expansion of the Voting Rights Act. And among other things, it would dilute many of the provisions that are in the Georgia bills, require automatic voter registration, make early voting and mail-in voting more accessible. And I think that's the bill you're referring to. It just passed the House and is now headed for the Senate. And one thing I don't want to see is a reimposition of federal control over Georgia elections. It is offensive and wrong, and we should not be singled out that way. And I don't want to do anything here that makes us a evidence in congressional testimony that suggests we are the test case for why we need to reimpose federal control. So we're at a tricky period right now, and I don't want to see that happen. Darren, there's a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot there. Go ahead. <laughs> this is a dark and shameful attempt to replicate one of the ugliest parts of our history. Dennis, I want to be clear about what's happening here. All of these voting bills that are being introduced are passed by people 
who have had the right to vote since the formation of this country centuries ago. I want to remind our listeners that it wasn't until the 15th Amendment, when that was passed in, in 1870, that the law said black men could vote. But even then, we all know we couldn't meaningfully access the ballot until the mid-1900s. Black women, who I talk a lot about on this podcast, weren't able to vote under the law until 1920 and not in practice until the mid-1900s as well. We haven't even really had the right to vote for a single lifetime, we being people of color, particularly black people. But yet here we are with people in Georgia trying to throw up barriers again. And as our listeners know, and you know, Dennis and Brian, I was very close to John Lewis, and I can't help but think about what he would say right now. Secondly, Republicans. Dennis, I remember a time that Republicans would never support unfunded mandates. They would never support bills that doesn't have a fiscal note attached to it. Now, not all of these voting bills need to have a fiscal note attached to them, but they're throwing these bills out here, but basically putting the burden on local governments. And then lastly is this. I keep saying this. Newsflash to Republicans in Georgia, you lost. You lost because your candidates were weak. Your field operations were weak. The enthusiasm amongst your base beyond Trump was weak. And their ideas and policy, particularly with their two U.S. Senate candidates, were weak. We didn't hear all this uproar and wanting to change things in 2018 when Governor Kemp won and when Republicans won every single statewide constitutional office. And I want to dispel this notion that only black people vote on Sundays. You go up to Brookhaven where Brian lives. You come up to Buckhead where I live. You go to anywhere. Matter of fact, I intentionally voted on a Sunday in North Fulton. And I saw just as many white people voting than black people. But the Sunday voting, to me, then, it was a explicit, comprehensive, surgical attempt to disenfranchise black voters. And the reason is, is because now we're criticizing churches who want people to participate in their fundamental right to vote by trying to basically somehow criticize souls to the polls. And so while Brian says we want everyone to have access to vote on every single day, that's what Democrats are for. Matter of fact, we're trying to increase the accessibility to voting. Republicans are trying to restrict voting. We are on the verge of being a national embarrassment. I keep saying this. We already know that there are groups lined up to put us in litigation for months after the legislature is open. We are going to be a national embarrassment unless Republicans figure out a different way to work with Democrats to try to bring true reform to some of our voting challenges, but not these attempts to disenfranchise voters and to put up more barriers. Theron, real quickly, as we mentioned with Brian, Governor Kemp will have a decision to make if something hits his desk. And even this week, he was adopting the I'll wait and see what happens approach. Do you agree with Brian that there are conversations going on behind the scenes? And two, what role might some of Georgia's big companies be playing here behind the scenes? Oh, the big companies are coming, Dennis, many of whom I represent. I'm not going to say who. But they're coming. What Georgia is about to do is put companies that are moving here, that are putting their headquarters here, or have already decided that Atlanta and Georgia should be their headquarters. They're putting them at a tremendous risk. Because here's the conflict. You can't internally try to embrace diversity and inclusion and quality and come out against a lot of the unrest that we saw with the murders of unarmed black men and black women in this country and change your culture internally and speak out and then not 
speak out against these voting bills that are going forward. They have no choice but to come out and speak. But here's the second problem you have. What I think the Republicans are doing in the legislature, they're trying to throw red meat to their Trump base that ultimately did not deliver Georgia for them this past year. But what I think is going on is I think that the speaker, lieutenant governor, and the governor have got to get in the room. And I can't speak for the governor, lieutenant governor, but I do know Speaker Ralston very well. And quite frankly, Dennis, I know Speaker Ralston's heart. I know that based on what he is seeing unfold in the House and the Senate right now, it's got to be very troubling to him because the number one objective is to try to protect your members when re-election comes. And so I do think that there's an attempt for Republicans to say, okay, you know what, let's do some very outrageous things. Let's put some bills forth to really appeal to our base, but then we're going to try to walk it back before the legislature ends. Here's what I'm most proud of, and I got to say this on this podcast. The minority party, Democrats have learned how to be a minority party. Then it's they're locking down on bills, and they're basically holding people accountable to say, you know what, we're not going to negotiate on any other bills that Republicans want us to vote for until we actually know exactly where people stand and where corporations stand when it comes to this voter restriction. But you look at what's happening with the sports betting bill here in Georgia, right? I'll take our listeners inside the Capitol. Democrats are saying, I don't want to have a conversation about sports betting until I know where those corporations stand that are actually in line to benefit from sports betting when it comes to these voter restriction bills. And so the challenge that Republicans have now, they have a divided caucus, a divided fractured party here as far as voting. And they also have a minority party in Democrats who are learning how to be a minority party and not working with them when it comes to some compromises on some bills that, quite frankly, can benefit the people of Georgia. Brian, real quickly on the possible role of the corporate community here. Yeah, I do think that we're going to begin to see, I know that some major business organizations are being called upon to to speak out. And, you know, and look, and the, and the purpose of those organizations is to be a voice for corporations in this community so that they don't have to do it under their own name. Now, sometimes they choose to do so, but I do think you're going to begin to see some businesses and business groups begin to at least lay, lay down some principles of what is acceptable and, and what's not. I don't know how it's going to take shape. There are several things going on in the, the General Assembly this session that actually the corporate community is paying a lot of attention to. There is, in addition to the sports betting, which Darren is right, it's something that, for the most part, Democrats would be for. They're fine with it. They would love to have another revenue source for either education or healthcare programs, and it could provide that. But they're not going to bend until they get exactly what they want. And so it looks like them and the handful of Republicans that are against it are going to prevent that from moving forward. They are becoming a much more of a partisan opposition force than what they've been in the past. And there's also some like anti-tech bills. You know, there's a lot of consternation, of course, amongst conservatives about big tech and the power in our society, particularly around political issues. You know, this is happening at a time when Microsoft just had a, a huge announcement on the west side of Atlanta, and they're building a database out in Douglas County, thousands of high-paying jobs. Google's got uh, thousands, of, not thousands, but a significant number of white-collar, high-paying jobs coming into a new development in Midtown. You know, we are becoming a real center for 
the tech industry on the East Coast. So uh, it's just another example of where there's going to be some continuing friction in the last days of this session between the corporate community that creates jobs in this state and the powers that be at the Gold Gnome. Brian, very quickly, uh, Theron mentioned that a lot of these companies don't want to work in their own name, but they do have organizations. One of those is the Georgia Chamber, which has issued a statement some weeks ago, kind of a statement of principles. It wasn't specific at all. Is there going to be pressure on organizations like that to get more specific about what it will tolerate and what it will oppose when it comes to voting? Yeah, in addition to the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, I think you'll see the Metro Chamber be a major voice or a significant voice on this. I don't know how they're going to frame it just yet, but they are the voice of the corporate conscience here in Metro Atlanta. But, you know, them, like any other lobbying group, any other interest group, has to balance what they say with their other priorities. You know, these groups are also trying to get other pieces of legislation passed. So there's a balance there that's got to be thought through. There's got to be a good strategy on on how they present these viewpoints. So full disclosure, I'm actually on the board of directors for the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and I'm also chair emeritus for the Georgia Chamber of Commerce when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I want to preface what I'm about to say by letting folks know that I do have an interest in making sure that I push the Georgia Chamber very hard, Dennis, to go as far as they can to really promote the interests of business. Brian did a fantastic job of saying, hey, they do have a robust agenda of things that they wanna push, but I can tell you that there are members of the board like me and others who are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the Georgia Chamber, particularly to go a little bit above and beyond and do quite frankly what they did during the RIFA debate here in Georgia, to do quite frankly what they did when, around the, the birther issue. Now, as far as the Metro Chamber, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that they've come out and spoken just yet, or if they have it, you know, probably going to do more. But I tell you, when I talk to corporate leaders in Georgia, this is the number one thing they ask me about. We are literally in my firm, Dennis, supplying reports to a lot of our corporate clients because they want to know daily what's going on with these voter restriction bills. And you see people protesting at the state capitol daily. There was a group out there this week. They started organizing at 5 a.m. in the morning, and they went all the way until 6 o'clock at night protesting these bills. And so I do think the corporate community and corporations individually have an opportunity here to step up, and I encourage them to do so. Quickly, let's turn to the nationwide picture when it comes to voting. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments this week in a challenge to a couple of Arizona laws one of which is very similar to a section of one of the Georgia bills. That section would throw out provisional ballots that were cast in the wrong precinct. Brian, during the arguments, an attorney for the Arizona Republican Party told Justice Amy Coney Barrett that the reason for throwing out ballots cast in the wrong precinct was that the way things are now, Republicans are at a competitive disadvantage. He didn't argue election integrity. He didn't argue preventing fraud. It was simply about tilting the playing field. Isn't that exactly what this is all about? You can't take the politics out of politics. And yes, there are partisan perspectives in all of this and partisan advantage to be 
considered. But is but, that legal? Well, this was something sad to the nine justices of the Supreme Court. So they're the ones who get to decide whether or not that is legal. I think that quote being pulled out the way that it was in the media, that is uh, an assertion that the court may address specifically when it rules in this case later this year. So, Dennis, I want to answer the question you asked Brian. Is this in a Republican attempt to tilt the playing field? And the answer to that question is yes. And what is happening in Arizona and what happened in Georgia is that Democrats won those two very important states to get 270 electoral votes for the president, but also to make sure that we gain seats in the uh, U.S. House and in the Senate. But the second thing I want to say about provisional voting is this. There are so many people that actually, for whatever reason, Dennis, may mistakenly go to their old precinct, which will be the wrong precinct. Because we know that in Georgia, based on the COVID-19 response, there were a lot of precincts that were changed. And so there's no notion that we're going to throw out somebody's ballot because the Secretary of State's office and the county officials have rearranged voting precincts and they just want to throw that out means that this is basically trying to tilt the playing field for Republicans. But I think I read somewhere this week that particularly in Georgia, that while we did see a slight increase in provisional ballots, it still only roughly makes up about less than 3% of the votes that were cast. And so we should not punish folks who unintentionally and mistakenly either go to the wrong precinct because that's the precinct that they've been going to for decades or years, or if for whatever reason they go to the new precinct and they were supposed to go to the old precinct. Just let the ballots be counted. I mean, again, this is Republicans trying to restrict and create barriers for people to vote. And I just think that this law, hopefully that it won't be upheld. I'm sorry, I hope the law that is in place currently will be upheld to make sure that we count all provisional ballots no matter where they were cast. Back to the attempt to pass a national expansion of the Voting Rights Act. It passed the House this week. Briefly from both of you, Brian, starting with you, this has to go to the Senate now where there would probably be a filibuster. It would take 60 votes to break that. Does this bill have any chance in the Senate? This is obviously not a Republican priority. It's something that if the Republicans were in the majority would have no chance of even getting to the floor. The tricky thing here is who's the one who steps up and does the filibuster to stop it? When the Voting Rights Act was renewed in 2006, it did have a little bit of opposition in the House, opposition that my then boss, Lynn Westmoreland, was leading. But when the final vote came to the floor, it was an overwhelming passage of the bill. And in the Senate, it was passed almost by acclamation. So it would depend on who, if anybody, is willing to stand up and take the slings and arrows that would come with opposing something called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? I mean, that's sort of the issue. Again, as, as I've said, I don't want to see this passed, but it just depends on if there's anybody willing to take the risks that come with it. Well, we saw this week that it passed the House, and we should celebrate that. That's a victory within itself. So I don't want to miss this moment to celebrate that a John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed the U.S. House and was going to the U.S. Senate, which, quite frankly, Dennis, is going to face some challenges. And I think Brian just did a wonderful job of just explaining the sort of sentimental, symbolic, but also real challenge for Republicans is that how do you go against Congressman John Lewis? 
You know, we saw so many Republicans say so many nice things about him when he passed away. Not only the man, but also the mission and what he did to unite this country, you know, the, the important role he played, that if they vote against this, they're going to have to explain why. I think Democrats will be united. I think the challenge now is, is that you got to figure out how can you go get a few Republicans to kind of vote your way to ultimately pass this. But if you just read the media reports, I think there's optimism. I'm optimistic, but I would be disingenuous to our listeners if I didn't tell you that I think that some of my sources are telling me that they are ready for a pretty uh, tough challenge going forward in the Senate. You mentioned John Lewis, Theron, and all of this happened at the same time that the nation lost another civil rights giant, Vernon Jordan, who grew up in an Atlanta housing project, went on to become one of the country's most powerful leaders in civil rights, in business, and philanthropy. Theron, in the phrase of the civil rights movement, Vernon Jordan took the fight to the suites, not just to the streets. So. Will his passing and his legacy have any effect, if not on perhaps the battles on the floor, at least on the tactics in the voting rights battle that we're seeing now? Ryan, you hear Dennis dropping bars on us today on the podcast? I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like Jesse Jackson. I know. All right, Dennis, I like that. You you, you practiced that one for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, when I think about Vernon Jordan, He's an example that not only should inspire current generations uh, to pick up the torch, but he is so respected with so many people that we've talked about on this show recently, just this year long. Hank Aaron, Reverend C.T. Vivian, Reverend Lowry, uh, Congressman John Lewis. One common thread between all of those leaders who I mentioned, and I hope I didn't forget anyone, is that all of them knew and respected and listened to Vernon Jordan. You know, I never had the opportunity, Dennis, to actually meet Mr. Jordan. That's one of the things that I really regret, read, you know, books that he's written. But when I look at the outpouring support for him from former presidents, and particularly as your reference to the suites, how he was that conduit. He was that person that met with folks and understood the intersection of politics and business. He was that glue. He was the person that you went to. If you were a business person or a corporation and you needed to understand how to politically get stuff done, Vernon Jordan was your man and vice versa. If you were in politics and you needed to understand how corporations worked and how they thought, I mean, he was that person that, as you put it, Dennis, got into the suites and ultimately did great for himself. But the last thing I'll say about Vernon Jordan is his philanthropic support for so many things that he loved dearly. And so I definitely hate to see this loss. And as you know, I've read about him and heard so many leaders talk about him. I just want to thank him and, and send my condolences to the family uh, for this tremendous loss, not only to this great state of Georgia, because he is a Georgia, but for this entire nation. And will the tactics that he used be implemented now in the voting rights fight? Yeah, that's exactly what's going to have to happen if we see a National Voting Rights Act passed called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And it was also an attempt, let's not forget this, to preempt what's not only going on in Georgia, but it's an attempt to stop what's going on in other legislatures across the United States. So corporations are going to have to continue to step up. I think you'll see the NBA. I think you'll see the NFL. You'll see a lot of our sports organizations, maybe even baseball, continue to engage. And so that is going to take that type of partnership and that type of coalition to stop some of these very restrictive 
barriers that are being put in place by Republicans all across our country. You know, folks like Vernon Jordan, we talk about them differently than we do C.T. Vivian and John Lewis and Joseph Lowry, other civil rights leaders from Atlanta who have died in the last year. I mean, it has really been a loss of some of the giants in the last 365 days. We talk about Vernon Jordan differently, partly because he went and got rich. <laughs> he had a he went from having grown up in a housing project and being a driver for rich people in Atlanta as a kid to make some extra dollars to help his family, to having a vacation home on Martha's Vineyard where he hobnobbed and hosted the elites not only of the country but of the world in an extraordinary example of the American dream. And that is something that I think is also worth noting. Somebody who achieved the Horatio Alger story, someone who lived the American dream and went from rags to riches. It is a great American story. It is a great Atlanta story. And I had a friend who is a lawyer here in town who posted on Twitter about Jordan's death. And he talked about being able to go to D.C. as a high schooler in some program. And they got to speak to Vernon Jordan. It was kids from all over the country. And Jordan asked, is anybody here from Atlanta? And my friend said, yes, sir, I'm from Lawrenceville. And Vernon said, son, that ain't Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) He never lost touch with his roots, even though he's been long gone to big and important things of national significance. Speaking of important things of national significance with Atlanta ties, we'll get to how Atlanta's spike in violent crime, along with those in other cities, got some national attention this week. Plus, of course, the battle against coronavirus. That and more when the political breakfast continues. Please stay right here. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on Political Breakfast. Thank you so much for staying with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. One weekend in Atlanta, at least 12 people shot, one of them killed, in a little over 12 hours in the city this past Sunday. It's part of a long-running major spike in violent crime in the city that includes 157 homicides in 2020 compared to 99 in 2019. Now, other cities are experiencing the same kind of thing. But Atlanta was the city at the center of a conversation in front of the whole nation this week 
FBI Director Chris Wray, who is from the Atlanta area, was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the January 6th riot at the Capitol. But he took another question from Georgia Democratic Senator John Ossoff, who asked Wray what some of the reasons might be for the spike in violent crime. And here's part of Ray's response, and it includes Atlanta. There are a variety of drivers that we think contribute to it, but the violent crime problem uh, over the last year, in particular 2020, um, is something that uh, is a, a great concern and that we are very warily keeping our eye on. It doesn't get the same kind of headlines as some of the other threats we've talked about today, but uh, as your question, uh, I think quite rightly, uh, implies it's a subject that's near and dear to the hearts of all the people we know back home. Yeah, well, with, with that many shootings in Atlanta on Sunday alone, this increase in violent crime is of grave concern to Georgians and people across the country. Will you work with this committee and my office to try to refine that assessment of the drivers of this violent crime wave? We'd be pleased to do that. I, I, I commend you for your interest in the violent crime problem back in our home state. Now, as you can tell from that exchange, officials really don't have a clear explanation for this sharp rise in violent crime, or at least a single one. Brian, there are going to be quite a few candidates in this year's mayoral election in Atlanta. One of them, City Council President Felicia Moore, has put the violent crime increase at the center of her bid to unseat Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. But won't any challenger to the mayor also have to answer Senator Ossoff's question. What's at the root of this, and what do you plan to do about it? Well, I think on the campaign trail, I don't know that we're going to get into the sociology of what is the, at the root of this. I think what the candidates taking on the incumbent must talk about is what they're going to do different, what they're going to do better, how they are going to keep our streets safe for our children and re-implement security for our neighborhoods. Uh, as Theron likes to point out all the time, I do live in Brookhaven, and I was out walking my dog on Sunday, and I ran into a young couple who had just moved here from a condo in Buckhead, and they were driven out by the crime. It is what Atlantans are talking about. And when the chatter is that negative, that is not good news for the incumbent. If you talk to any Atlanta voters today, this is the issue at the top of their minds. And I feel like a opportunity has been missed to communicate with the Atlantans in an effective way on this issue. There's a hesitance about addressing it. I really think this is one of the greatest civil rights issues of our generation. You look at all those folks that Senator Ossoff is talking about, it is overwhelmingly African-American young people. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for anybody to be killed in violent crime. But we are seeing a disproportionate impact, a phrase we keep talking about on COVID and voting and all these other things, but a disproportionate impact on crime on Black people. And we're talking about a city where the majority of the electorate is Black, and this is going to be something that mobilizes them. You know, I can't disagree with Brian on how crime in the city of Atlanta is the preeminent issue that everyone is talking about. I would not be truthful if I didn't agree with him on that. It is the issue that I worry about the most. It is the issue that I'm concerned about the most. And it's quite frankly, the issue that 
I'm committed to trying to solve. Uh, it is number one on my priority list. And, you know, our listeners know I'm a staunch supporter of Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. I will continue to always support her and I'm going to do everything I can to get her reelected. And I'm pretty good at electing mayors in the city of Atlanta. I must brag on myself for that. I'm actually undefeated. But when Brian tells us about the conversation he had, you know, walking his dog in Brookhaven, talking to the Atlanta couple, that is real. I've talked to folks who are concerned uh, and has moved not only because of crime, but also, you know, let's note Brookhaven's got some really good relief uh, from the county as far as taxes. And also they got a pretty low millage weight as well. So I'm sure that factored in to the move. But I do have the utmost confidence in Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms that, that she's going to and not only implement a plan, but she's got to continue to communicate with the voters, communicate with the citizens about what's being done. But one of the things I must note, Dennis, in listening to the FBI director's response, the first thing he said to Senator Ossoff when answering the senator's question, he talked about COVID-19 and that that has been something that is not only affected Atlanta, but it's also affected a lot of cities across the country. And what I kind of picked up from listening to the response is, as you stated, Dennis, there's really no one solution to this. I mean, there's a lot of different challenges, a lot of different things that have caused the crime to spike uh, in Atlanta and other places. But ultimately, I think Senator Ossoff needed to ask that question and put Atlanta again on the national spotlight. But as far as the mayor's race, you are going to be defined by not only your plan, but also your actions to reduce crime in the city. And so I think it's going to be the number one issue. But I do have the utmost confidence that Mayor Bottoms is the right person to lead us through this tough time. But ultimately, I do think that you'll see some sweeping changes coming here pretty soon from the Bottoms administration. Speaking of which, Theron, one of the criticisms of the mayor has been that she has had time to at least start to address not just the crime problem itself, but the problems of police morale and manpower. And we still have an interim police chief. Couldn't a step as simple as that been done by now. Yeah, it's funny, Dennis. I swear you probably are involved or got maybe a hidden camera or a microphone uh, when I go around and meet with uh, people in Atlanta during the week because I know when I get on this podcast, you're going to repeat or ask me a question they've already asked me, and that is, why do we still have an interim chief a year later? You know, I come down kind of on both sides on that. Yes, we do need to have a permanent chief. I don't disagree with that. I think we need to have a permanent chief in place and Mayor Bottoms has said, you know, that search is going to happen and we're going to pick that permanent chief. But I do think that Chief Brian, and I've been very supportive of him on this podcast, is the right man for the job right now. So why um, not appoint him the permanent chief? Why not have done that by now? Well, you know, um, I, I will ask that question, Dennis, to the mayor. Not sure what the response I'm going to get. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's something that actually I would support. I'll go on a limb and say that I would support as a citizen, as a supporter of this administration, Chief Brian being the permanent chief. And what you're getting at, Dennis, what does that do? Right. I know where you're going with this. It, it, it shows that you have a permanent hand at the wheel. You have someone who's not going to go uh, anywhere. And they also feel emboldened. They feel empowered to make tough decisions. Right. Because they're not worried about if they make these decisions. Will they be replaced? Exactly. Um, and, and it also instills confidence in the city council. And it's still confidence in a lot of the other law enforcement agencies that we got to work with. And so I would support that. Not sure if the mayor is going to do that. 
But that is a part of the equation to having a long-term public safety solution in the city. Brian, real quickly on what Theron just said, and also back to the original question was, you know, aren't her challengers going to have to say, okay, this is what I would do? Well, yeah, they, they got to say what they're going to do, no doubt about it. And, you know, I know that I am not the voting block that her challengers are going to be going after, obviously, because I don't live in Atlanta, I live in Brookhaven, but but they, I'm still, I'm not exactly, even if I did live in Atlanta, I wouldn't be their, their audience necessarily. But my opinion is that the old police chief, Chief Shields, who was the chief during the breakout of the protest and then the subsequent violence last summer, was doing a fine job. There was no reason to fire her. It was a product of the blame police first mentality of some Democratic leaders. The Richard Brooks case is what sort of precipitated her firing. That should not have happened. And I think that we are paying the consequences of those actions today with the crime that we're seeing throughout the city of Atlanta. We have sent a signal to police officers that if you go into a dangerous situation with somebody who is high or drunk or acting violently, and then things go awry because you're dealing with somebody high, drunk, or acting violently, then you are to blame. And in fact, you're probably a racist too. And so you have to be destroyed on every level. And it doesn't really even matter what your race is. You're still going to be affixed with that label. So police have been sent a strong signal. Do nothing. Do nothing and you'll be okay. Let me, if you let me, go in there... And you and you do what you're supposed to do to stop crime, then you are putting yourself in existential danger. Real, real quick for our listeners, you know, Chief Shields was not fired. She resigned. The mayor accepted her resignation. Secondly, I think that the challenge with Chief Shields, and I got to say this because, again, this is why we're the number one podcast, not only in Georgia, but I believe in the nation, is because it was two things that happened. The first thing that happened was the peaceful protests in Atlanta in a response to the public lynching of George Floyd by a white police officer, those peaceful protests turned violent. That was the first strike. And I think it's fair to say that Chief Shields was not as prepared as she should have been for that situation. And she did make strides after that. We had several protests after that and they went better and they went well and we didn't have the violence. But then we had the officers tasing the two college students. All right. Again, on Chief Shields' watch. And then when the Rayshard Brooks incident happened, that, again, was on her watch. And that, I think, was the tipping point where I think she understood that, hey, I probably need to step aside and really have someone else come in and deal with these situations. And so I don't want to put all the blame on the current APD regime that's in leadership now because they do deserve the criticism for things that have happened since Chief Shields have left. But also some of the things that we're seeing unfold now is things that were bubbling up under the Shields leadership that ultimately, because of these events that I just outlined, are now coming to more of a public display. So we can't blame all of what is happening on Chief Bryant and can't let Chief Shields totally off the hook either. Because a lot of this the morale issues, the lack of training, Brian, that happened under Shields. Again, I want to be clear for our listeners. That while, you know, we're in this blame game election season, I don't want our listeners to leave this thinking that Brian should receive 100% of the blame what's going on because some of this did start occurring under the Shields leadership. 
Real quickly, Theron, on Brian's point about blaming police for things that go wrong. Brian, I would tell you, look, you know, white voters are going to play a pivotal role in electing the next mayor in the city of Atlanta. I want to go on record for saying that. I think they're going to probably play the largest role that they've ever played in electing the next mayor. So you won't see this sort of South versus North just campaigning and with messaging. I think you're going to see a different messaging this time. Excellent point there. And I, and I, I just want to add that I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think they're going to, you know, and I, I spend a lot of time with, you know, good white people. Um, <laughs> but officers, Dennis. So growing up in Athens and growing up poor, my mom taught me because I was raised by a single mom to really don't ever interact with the police. Right. Like if they ask you to do something, just do it. Don't push back. Don't have much interaction with them. Follow the law. Follow the rules. You know, she taught me if you ever get pulled over, put both hands on the steering wheel, right? So I grew up kind of not really having a lot of interaction with police officers, right? Because in my culture, in my hood, if you're talking to a police officer, either you've done something wrong or you're a snitch. So in my now adult age of 43, uh, I feel more comfortable talking to police officers. And this is what I found. Brian actually is right. They do feel worried about being as forceful as they should be on certain occasions, right? I've talked to them about having the proper training to de-escalate situations that become hostile. But I think that they still feel supported. And these men and women who have taken the oath to office to protect us, they're still committed to that. The challenge is, though, I do think you got to have an uncomfortable conversation about funding and making sure that they feel totally supported. You know, we, we can't not talk about how they want more money. And they deserve more money, right? I mean, you know, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, we leave this out, Dennis. We never mentioned this, but I got to mention it. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms gave police officers in the city of Atlanta their largest raise in the history of the city, period. No one talks about that anymore, right? I mean, this was a monumental celebration when it happened. And, you know, this made national news. Well, now because of the unrest and things that are going on, we got to go beyond the funding. But I do think that systemically we got to have a conversation about the culture within the police department, and we got to make sure that they feel supported, but also we got to hold them accountable and make sure that they understand that they have a job to do. And so I come from that premise of talking to them that, you know, we do have to let them be heard, provide opportunities for them to express concerns, but also we got to make sure that they're held accountable and that we give them the proper training and the proper funding and support to do their jobs effectively. Switching to the battle against COVID-19, this week marked a year since Georgia saw its first recorded case. And since then, over 15,300 Georgians have died of the disease. Another 2,300 deaths are listed as probably linked to COVID, this according to the State Department of Public Health. Now, Governor Kemp this week announced five new mass vaccination centers, and he defended the state's vaccine program in terms of getting the available vaccines into people's arms. But according to an analysis of CDC data by NPR, Georgia was dead last among the 50 states in the rate of available vaccines actually administered. Brian, how big of a challenge is this to the governor since vaccine response is going to be at the center of the 2022 election? I don't know that it will be the center of the 2022 election. We should be 
coming to the end of this, let's hope by the summer there will be some lingering effects, but we will have herd immunity sometime this year. And I think that there's going to be a huge appetite amongst the public to move on past this. We're tired of it. We've been tired of it for a very long time. I don't know that anyone is going to want to be talking about this too much in 2022. But the governor has used vaccine response as part of his pivot away from some of the other things for which he's been criticized. And now we have data saying, at least for now, Georgia's dead last in administering it. And I want to give them credit in the midst of those headlines, continuing to face the public, continuing to face the media and telling their story. I think it's been very effective and very important for them to maintain the trust of the public. They've come out this week and they had said, our strategy is different than in other states. We are prioritizing those who are most vulnerable. And if you look at the differences between the states, you're not seeing Georgia like way behind. Right. It's it's a very narrow range. Eighty percent of the vaccines that Georgia have been sent are already in arms or not far behind. And we are doing much better than many states when it comes to getting vaccines to those most vulnerable, those over 65, those with pre-existing conditions. And the governor so, made that point during his press conference this week, too. Yeah. And it just goes to show a, a different strategy. And I've seen how that has played out. I have a neighbor who has a member of the household who has cancer, but they are, you know, under 40. And so they are driving to Alabama to get their vaccines. So other states have looser standards. It's more come one, come all. And so that means that they are getting more vaccinations out, but not necessarily into the groups that pose the biggest dangers because it's fatal for them. Dennis, I can't believe it's been a year. I mean, definitely want to give kudos to you for, and Brian and I, you know, I want to expose our conversations a little bit, but we, every week we know that you're going to make sure that we talk about COVID-19 on this podcast. Um, you know, I think as far as the vaccines, Brian is right. I mean, Governor Kemp is at his best when he's communicating. You know, Governor Kemp this week announced that he's increasing the statewide vaccine sites from four to nine. I've heard from many people that have actually gone through the process of getting their vaccine shots, that it was a seamless process that was very organized. And Brian has said this. He's going to be judged, whether it's possibly through a primary or through just a general election next year, or how he handled this deadly pandemic and the crisis and, and sort of getting us back to work and back to normal as much as we can be. And then also, how did he administer the vaccines? And so, It is the most important thing that he has to do. And and I'm very anxious to see, and I want to basically, again, thank the teachers for their patience, because now we know in Georgia, teachers will begin the process of getting their vaccines, right? They will begin the process of being vaccinated. And we know that that's a very important constituency group here that have got to get back into the classroom so we can get back to in-person learning. But I want the numbers to get up a little bit in Georgia as far as uh, how we administering them. I think the governor is doing whatever he can to try to get as many doses as we can. I think we've decreased the number of vaccines that are left over. So I think they're trying to give them to as many people as possible. But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but I do think we're kind of heading in the right direction. But we still need to make sure that we're communicating and, and getting everyone the information they need to get their vaccine shots. In about 30 seconds here, Theron, Brian said that by the time of November 2022, a lot of people will have moved past the COVID response to focus on other things when they vote for governor. Will Democrats continue to highlight the COVID vaccine response, 
or do you think they run the risk if they do that people will have moved past it? I think the COVID-19 response and how the governor administered the vaccines will continue to play a big role even until November 2022. I think the second issue that may be a close number one will be voting. And if the legislature continues to put forth these very restrictive barriers when it comes to voting in Georgia. And then thirdly, Brian is right, though, there will be another issue that I think will be up there. But ultimately, I just think that Georgians are going to continue to live in this new norm. And we're going to judge all of our elected officials on the COVID response and how they administer the vaccines. Let me tell you where I think Kemp has a really strong argument. He got pounded by the national media for being the first to reopen our economy. History has proved him right. We did not have a spike that was unusual in the country. We were not outliers as far as death, which was the prediction that you were seeing out of D.C. and New York media. And as a result, we have 5% unemployment today. And as a result, our economy is doing much better than many of the blue states that maintain the lockdowns for much longer, who, by the way, didn't end up having significantly lower or lower at all COVID rates. He was wise. He was a leader. He was courageous. And he was tough amid a tsunami of criticism. And he was proven right. And that is something that is a strong message about his character. And I think his character and his courage are an important part of how he could be defined going into 2022 for different audiences. For Republicans, I was tough on the economy. I kept it open. I saved small businesses. I saved jobs. I fought to get schools back open. And then for a general election audience, his courage that he demonstrated during the controversy following the election of 2020. He was under tremendous pressure from the president and many other party leaders to call a special session to change who our electoral college votes went to. We all know this would have been an economic nuclear bomb going off in this state if he had done any of those things. Corporate Georgia, corporate America would have pulled out of here. It would have been awful. He stood up, he defended our reputation, he followed the rule of law and kept his backbone upright at a time when many would have been bent over. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, a public affairs and government consultant, and most recently a senior advisor to the Biden-Georgia campaign. Thanks so much to you both. Have a great weekend. Don't get shot. Rest in peace, Vernon Jordan. And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T-I-N-S-D-A-L-E. Theron is at Theron Johnson. And I'm at D-E-N-I-S-O-H-A-Y-E-R. Our thanks to Kevin Rinker and Jess Mador for their production assistance. And if you like this show, subscribe, please. And you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. 
And please check out all the other fantastic podcasts from WABE. The latest on the goings-on at the state capitol on our own political breakfast pop-up podcast, Gold Dome Scramble, with Lisa Rayum and the WABE reporters. There's up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus on Did You Wash Your Hands with Sam Whitehead, a deep dive into the politics and money in one corner of the gun debate. Lisa Hagen brings you no compromise. And then there's the Peabody Award-winning Buried Truths. Hank Klibanoff unearths details about the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick. And here on The Political Breakfast, we'll be back in your feed and in your head real soon with some more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Have a great and a safe week. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.